Today's reading comes from 1 Peter 1, verses 1 to 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. This morning we begin a new series looking at a letter that one of the early Christians, uh, Peter, wrote to a group of Christians that were scattered uh, throughout uh, what we now know of as northern Turkey, uh, but in those days was called Asia Minor. And we're looking at it under the title of How Do We Live Confidently in a Complex World? At the start of the last century, two men, Scott and Amundsen, sought to be the first person to reach the South Pole. They prepared for their expeditions very differently. Amundsen prepared very carefully. He tried eating dolphin meat as he reckoned that one day he might be marooned with only dolphin to eat. He observed the native Inuit or Eskimo people. He watched how they moved slowly so as not to sweat. He watched how they used dogs to pull their sleds, dogs which ate meat. And he planned that he would in fact kill some of his dogs on his expedition in order to feed the other dogs if things got desperate. He and his whole team adopted native clothing. He prepared carefully and he planned strategically. And most significantly, Amundsen deliberately walked for only 20 miles each day and then stopped. His group then fanned out and marked supply stores where they'd stopped with black flags 10 miles either side of their camp so that they would know on their return journey where they were, where their supplies were and they could follow the route back. 
Amundsen reached the South Pole first and got back safely. The British explorer Scott did things very differently. He had little or no preparation. He chose ponies to pull sledge, which sweated badly and suffered greatly. Most of them died very quickly into the expedition and had to sadly be put down. In addition, Scott also chose motor sledges that hadn't been tested in the extreme conditions of the Antarctic. Their engines cracked quickly, so the men had to pull the sledges themselves, which was incredibly demanding and exhausting for the men. And each day, Scott's expedition team simply walked until they got tired. It varied from day to day how far they walked. Unlike Amundsen, they didn't mark their route on their way to the South Pole. And when eventually they reached the South Pole, depressingly, there they found Amundsen's tent and a note written by Amundsen and his team to Scott and his team. This is a photograph of them having reached the South Pole and a more depressed and exhausted group of people uh, you could not wish to see. They look as though they themselves have been in lockdown. They began the long journey back, demoralised, exhausted and depressed. And tragically, they died just 10 miles away from their next supply post. I don't know about you, but I've been thinking uh, about people like them during uh, the lockdown and our response to coronavirus. Very early on, I read one commentator who helpfully said this. This lockdown, this response to coronavirus, this is a marathon conducted in a series of sprints. And as I thought about it, that was exactly what Amundsen did and exactly what Scott didn't do. And the key to Amundsen's success was preparation. Taking each day in those deliberate 20-mile stages, deliberately marking out his route on the way there so that he could find his way back, but also deliberately doing a marathon in a series of 20-mile sprints. And key to Amundsen's success was his preparation. Well, the letter, part of which Craig read for us a few moments ago, that we're beginning to look at this morning is exactly that. It's a letter of preparation. First and Second Peter are letters written by Simon Peter, one of the early followers of Jesus, to people in what we now call Northern Turkey. It isn't written, unlike Paul's letters, to a group of churches, but it's written to groups of Christians and individuals who've been scattered across this part of the world known as Asia Minor. So Peter writes in verse 1, to the exile scattered in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Northern Turkey is a stunning piece of geography and land. Apparently there are these incredibly rocky uh, sort of funnels that go up that you can take balloon rides and one day when we can travel I'd love to go and see exactly what it's like. But Peter in writing to these groups of Christians knows that even though life has been complicated for them up to now things are about to get even more complex. To date this group of Christians 
many of whom had been Jewish before, had suffered gossip and slander, loss of earnings or promotion. But now Peter, probably writing from Rome, is aware that under the new emperor, Nero, things are about to get far worse. And sadly, he was proved right. The letter is not a generic circular. It's written to people like you and me. People who are seeking to work out what it means to follow Jesus, to live confidently for God, but in a world that is increasingly complex and a world where they know pain and suffering. So how does Peter begin? Well, four or five points as we look at that passage that Craig read for us a few moments ago. Firstly, it's written by someone who understands. As was common in the ancient world, Peter introduces himself, the author, at the start of the letter. We sign our letters at the end. In those days, you started off by saying who you were at the start of the letter. So in verse 1, Peter simply says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. At first glance, it seems quite a grand title. But if you think about it, the reality is a bit different. Peter is someone who, just like we were hearing from Bruce a few moments ago, has had his life totally turned around by an encounter with the person of Jesus Christ. Peter knows that he's accepted for who he is, not because of any good things that he does, not because of his religious background, but because he's met somebody who knows him, who loves him, and who accepts him and forgives him, knowing all that he's capable of, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Perhaps like me, you feel that you've let God down. Well, Peter knew exactly how that felt. Perhaps like me, at times you've kept quiet about your faith because of fear. Well, again, if you read the gospel accounts, Peter knew exactly how that felt. Or perhaps you've opened your mouth and said the wrong thing at the wrong time. Well, Peter was a really good example of somebody who'd done that. Maybe at times you think that you know better than Jesus. Again, Peter repeatedly demonstrated that he had that particular trait in his character. Maybe at times you are so conditioned by your religion that again you think you know better than Jesus who is in the kingdom of God and who isn't. Peter ticked that box as well. Maybe at times you're tempted to compare yourself to other Christians and be conscious of status, what they're doing, what God is calling them to be, rather than simply realising that God loves and accepts you for who you are and the way in which you're trying to live and serve him. Peter ticked every single box. Peter had repeatedly failed and yet knew that even more significant than his belief in Jesus was Jesus believing in him. The letter is written by someone who understands. Secondly, verses three to five, it's written to focus on the hope that Jesus brings. For Peter, as again we read through the accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the death of Jesus was the worst thing possible that could have happened. 
It was the end of Peter's hopes and dreams and expectations. But then he'd witnessed on that first Easter Sunday the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for Peter, everything changed. On the day of Pentecost, he refers again and again to how the resurrection of Jesus has changed how he sees himself, how he sees the world and how he sees God. And he reminds these early Christians that he's writing to that they have experienced a new birth, a new life and a new living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. Christian hope isn't wishful thinking. It isn't blind optimism. I hope my football team gets better next season. I hope we can get away somewhere on holiday this summer. Christian hope is a future certainty based on a past event. The raising of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Peter says to these Christians in northern Turkey, and Peter says to you and to me this morning, you have a living hope. A hope based on a past event. An event that changed the history of humanity in time and space and in eternity. And Peter goes on to say that this living hope is actually guarded by God himself, verse 5. He speaks about the power of God guarding or shielding, about which we've learned a lot over the last few weeks, the power of God shielding that living hope in every single person who seeks to follow Jesus. That the power of God guards our hope, that living hope that's made possible by the resurrection of Jesus. And fourthly and finally, Peter says that this hope survives and endures tough times. Look at verses six to nine. Peter is utterly realistic. He knows that following Jesus does not guarantee happiness, does not guarantee the followers of Jesus an easy time. Peter knew that trials and tough times were happening and were about to get even worse. But Peter knew, because he'd experienced it personally, that God was bigger and that God was ultimately more reliable than anything the world, society, Rome could throw at him. And even at this early stage, the early Christians are discovering perhaps one of the deepest paradoxes of the Christian faith. Suffering is counterintuitive. Suffering is countercultural, but suffering has always been the deepest paradox at the heart of following Jesus. Or as Peter's colleague Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. These past few months have been tough. It has felt like a marathon. And at different times, different ones of us will have hit the wall that marathon runners speak about. I've certainly hit the wall on at least two occasions. But this letter speaks to me this morning that there is still hope. 
and that that hope can sustain me and can sustain you even through the tough times, perhaps especially through the tough times. That even through the lockdown, that even as we go into what's being referred to as the new normal, we do so with a future certainty based on a past event. And that whatever we might face, suffering, perseverance, challenges to our character and what we've known and relied upon, we can know that living hope that is centred on the person of Jesus. That Jesus, who lived a fully human life, has now been raised from the dead. And that event in human history changes everything and gives you and I, who want to follow Jesus, a living hope that is guarded and shielded by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, at work in us who know and love and trust Jesus. Peter was writing to people for whom life was very complex and for whom life was about to get very tough. But Peter, just like Craig, just like Bruce, just like me, know the difference that Jesus makes. And an encounter with the risen Jesus, with the power of God then released into our lives, can change how we face the past, the present and the future. That living hope that you and I have as Christians, of which Paul says the first deposit is the Holy Spirit given to us, the very life of God released into your life and mine. So as you think about how you're feeling this morning, as you think about how you're feeling as things become even more uncertain as the lockdown is eased over the next few days and weeks, the challenge for you and for me is to put our hope, our trust in that living hope and to know that power of God shielding it and guarding it that it might sustain us in our faith, in our character and our hope. As one writer speaking about the Black Lives Matter um, issue last week said, hope is a verb as well as a noun. And the challenge for you and for me this week is to hope, to put our hope in the one who is our living hope.